This podcast is brought to you by A. Miller George Funeral Home, where each life is celebrated, and their sister company, Cremation London Middlesex, both family-owned and operated, by the Diocese of Huron, a community where families and individuals from Windsor to Owen Sound, Grand Bend to Port Rowan, come together to worship and serve, and by Molly Maid. Make your home a healthy haven. Call Molly Maid London today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever and wherever you may be, we welcome you back. It's another edition of the Vickers Crossing podcast. The Vickers Crossing is a virtual space where faith intersects with the public square. And for those watching on YouTube, we have a logo. You said graphics. Kevin's holding that up. It is. That's great. My name is Rob Henderson, and I serve as the priest at Holy Trinity St. Stephen's Anglican Church here in London, Ontario. Thank you. Uh, he's a good guy. That uh, vicar number one, vicar number two here is Kevin George. I am uh, rector at uh, St. Paul's Cathedral here in London, Ontario, down the heart of the city. All right. Good to be back together, my friend. Yeah, and, you too, uh, bud. I hope Lent's going well. As we're Lent's going our well. Through our 40 days. Yeah, yeah we've yeah. been kicking through some stuff here. You know, we had, uh, yeah. I think we, I guess we missed a week last week. So I think we had, we had our mm-hmm. Ash Wednesday. We've got some Lenten series stuff going on. Anybody yeah. in the London area listening, you know, pop out on Wednesdays at noon. We got some yeah. good stuff. One of our upcoming guests, John Pavlovitz, uh, is mm-hmm. running beginning Monday night an online uh, Lenten study for the Deanery of London. Free of charge, uh, um, yep. and uh, he's got a new book coming out called um, something about giving up cruelty. I think, which is we could all use a little of that. But anyway, yeah, so yeah, it's good. been been a thing. You good. probably cooking over there too, are you? Yeah, yeah, we got a couple of studies going on, things within the parish, and uh, and some other work that we're moving forward on. So things are always it's never dull. As we no, say. it's never dull. As we and, were sharing stories of Sundays, sometimes Kevin oh, yeah. say, you know, if you ever tell me that's boring at church. No. Then just come on in because I guarantee you something's no. going to be happening. There's a there's and a Netflix. It's never, it's never dull. Yeah. <laughs> there's a Netflix series in there somewhere. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, uh, well, welcome back, everybody. This is the third episode of season ten of the Vickers Crossing, and today we're excited to welcome back to the podcast a good friend, uh, Brian Zahn, will be joining mm. us here in just a couple of minutes, and he is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph's, Missouri, and a uh, very passionate a, a reader of theology and philosophy. He's a hiker. He's a mountain climber. Yep. Authority on all things Bob Dylan, which yep. is pretty cool. Yep. And he is the author of several books, and we've had him on talking about some of those in the past, mm-hmm. uh, including today we're going to be um, chatting about some of his work, but some of his works uh, are Beauty Will Save the World, mm-hmm. A Farewell to Mars, Water to Wine, um, Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God. So those are just a few titles. And his newest book is The Wood Between the Worlds, which mm. came out um, early February, right? Yeah, just a early couple weeks February? ago, I think. Yeah, yeah it was earlier this ago. month. And actually, it's a book we're studying for Lent here at St. Paul's. So we have okay. a group of about 20 that have been reading this book, if you can get it, because I will have to ask them. But man, they must be selling like hotcakes because it takes weeks to get them through Amazon. So anyway, yeah. it's a good, yeah. that's a good sign for our, speak, our uh, guest today. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, we'll talk yeah. about that and uh, and more. And Brian will be here in just a few moments. 
Yep. And before we go too far, of course, we want to take the opportunity to acknowledge the lands upon which we record this podcast are the traditional lands of the Anunnakiavik, Haudenosaunee, Lenapeawak, and Attawandaran peoples. And uh, these lands are connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. These lands continue to be home to diverse indigenous peoples whom we recognize as contemporary stewards of the land, vital contributors of our society and people with whom we wish to walk together the two row path towards reconciliation. And uh, we as always want to consider ways uh, here in our work on the podcast, in our parish communities and across uh, all of the sectors really, how we can own our part in the brokenness and take our part in the healing. We have some wonderful sponsors here in the Vickers Crossing podcast that enable us to be able to do this. So we want to acknowledge them and offer our thanks once again to A. Miller George Funeral Home, where each life is celebrated, and their sister company, Cremation London Middlesex, both family-owned and operated. Our thanks to Dave Mullen and his staff for being part of our podcast family here. Well, it falls upon me then to thank the Diocese of Huron, a thing that, as I become fond of saying, keeps us in bread and wine and uh, <laughs> sometimes beer and roast beef or whatever else because we're gamefully employed <laughs> fellas with the Diocese of Huron. So, uh, but uh, the Diocese of Huron is a community where families and individuals from Windsor to Owen Sound to Grand Bend to Port Rowan come together to worship and to serve. So our thanks to Bishop Todd Townsend and all the folks at the Diocese of Huron. And to Molly Maid, make your home a healthy haven. Call Molly Maid London today. They're waiting for your call. You can spruce up your place for Easter, right? Yep. Getting yep. ready if you're having company. Yep. And many thanks to Tricia Listar for uh, being part of the podcast and sponsoring us. So give them a call today, folks. Awesome stuff. So shall we get Brian in here? I think he's well, itching to get in and talk about his book, The Wood Between the Worlds. Yeah, let's see if we oh, can do, find do him. Your Brian, magic. Brian, do your magic. where are you, Brian? Come see us. All right, we found Brian. He's here. There he is. And back on the on the Vickers Crossing podcast. And uh, Brian, so great to have you back with us. And uh, thanks for taking the time. I know uh, before we started recording, I think you're trying to set a world record for the most podcasts this month. Is that <laughs> what's going on? Yeah, I think I did. <laughs> I mean, this is the 29-day month or 29 uh, day year from February. And I think I did 28 podcasts in 29 oh, wow. days. That's something yeah, else. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's You're impressive. To give up but you know what? Right? Look, I'm not complaining. Okay, I'm not complaining. I'm just no, telling you I'm doing good. a lot, but I'm not <laughs> complaining. Yeah. All good. All good. It's, it's good. You know, it's very good. And, and, uh, and I've been with you guys a lot lately. It kind of feels like, I feel like, yeah, I feel like I'm a vicar now or something. That's right. He's a vicar. And <laughs> he could be an Anglican. Those listening, Brian did a, a series for us mm -hmm. uh, during Advent uh, with our folks. And uh, and people are still talking about it, Brian. So thank oh, you for doing that as well. Yeah, so that's been good. great. Really yeah. good. Well, look, let's jump right into the book. The book is The Wood Between the Worlds. Uh, and, you know, uh, the, the saying is never judge a book by its cover. But I got to tell you, if you judge this one by its cover, you will really <laughs> love this book because, wow, what did you do to get this artistic? Like, this is amazing. Look, I mean, I didn't do anything really other than other than I talk a lot about images in the book. And so that probably inspired the designer. Uh, they had sent me various options, and you know, I picked this one, and I'd, I'd seen it like digitally. Yeah. But 
it, when, when the first copy arrived, which was just a few days before it was released, yeah, I, I was literally blown away. Yeah, I was like, dang, yeah, that is just so stunning. It, and then, it, so, yeah, I said the exact same thing. I said, you, I hope you can judge this book by its cover. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> it's like there's a gold embossing going through it. It glitters. I mean, it actually shines. Yeah. It really is quite something. Well, the the, the designer had really. They're working with one of the art images I refer to in the book. Yeah. Then they've got, you know, like the cosmos and the... So it's the wood between world. I mean, they yeah. really did a good job. So, well, kudos. IVP, my hat's off to you. Yeah, kudos, kudos. But what's in the book is even better, um, as, as hard as it is to say that, because it is a good cover. But uh, so I want to start with uh, something you write in a prelude, you know, Good Friday is, we're, we're, we're coming up on that now, we won't be too far mm -hmm. away. And you write on Good Friday, the true nature of God is on full display uh, in Jesus of Nazareth crucified. God is the crucified one, and yet nothing is more central to the theological vocation than interpreting the meaning of God as revealed in the crucified Christ. Theologians must gather worshipfully around the cross of Christ and speak from there. All that can truthfully be said about God is somehow present at the cross. I wonder, Brian, if you could say more about this in the, in the notion that in the Christ, Christian gospel, everything leads to the cross, everything processes from the cross. Yeah, I actually, I believe all of that. I believe what I just said there. Mm. Um, in scripture, of course, everything is moving toward the cross. The Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, the gospels, and then Acts and and the the epistles into the apocalypse, everything is then flowing from it. You know, Paul said in a fairly well known verse when he was recollecting his first missionary moments among the Corinthians, he said, "For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." I think we can hear that as. Paul is saying, well, I'm going to limit myself to just to some basics or to one narrow aspect of the Christian faith, at least for, for now. I no longer read that verse like that. I think Paul is not at all limiting himself, and he knows it, hmm. that indeed all that can be known about God is somehow present at the cross. And this is, this is one of the main things I'm doing in the book is pushing back on trying to deal with the cross with a single atonement theory. Mm. First of all, the, the, the very phrase atonement theory has a very clinical sound. There's no pathos in it. There's, there's no emotion. Um, but I think even worse is the idea that you can come up with a mm. single dogmatic sentence or two and say, this is what the cross means, dun da dun da dun And then you're like, yes, sir, all right, I'm all done. Next question, please. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to me to be a rather atrocious way to position ourselves before the cross. And so I, I, I mean, I don't know if you were going to bring it up later on, but I, but I talk about it being a, a kaleidoscopic mm. theological investigation. You know how a kaleidoscope works. You look through it point it toward the light, you see a design, you see colors, but then you turn the kaleidoscope 
you still see the same source of light, but the colors and the geometric design has now changed. Mm. I think that's a better way of approaching the cross. I'm not saying that anything anybody would dream to say about the cross is true, but I also will say that I think in my book, I land well within the bounds of generous orthodoxy. And um, there's just a lot that can be said about the cross. And to try to deal with the cross only in doctrinal statements of faith Mm-hmm. Which which then become very combative often. They yes. want they want to pit one theory against another, and we end up fighting for a single interpretation of the cross. I try I'm trying to avoid all of that in this book. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, and it's and, and and becomes very evident as you work through it. And uh, as I was saying, I, you know, our, our uh, one of our Lenten studies here at St. Paul's is is this book, and I think one of the things that um, that people are appreciating is that very nature of that kaleidoscopic sort of nature that you're talking about is that in that there's now many of them have been raised on this sort of singular atonement Mm -hmm. theory. Um, the, um, one of the things that they've been taken with as well in there is, is, as you say, going from that kaleidoscopic, is you write, on canvas and wood, in stone and on metal, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has been painted, carved, sculpted and molded billions with a B, mm-hmm. billions of times. Everyone has seen a crucifix. Its long history and sheer ubiquity has rendered it almost invisible. Yet, if we give it just a moment of serious consideration to the crucifix, it's still capable of shocking us. If for no other reason than it is such an outrageous anthropological absurdity. I wonder if you'll say more and perhaps a little bit about how you have seen so many of these billions and yet it's only this many. And I was taken in that uh, introduction or first chapter, I think it is about, you know, you and Perry, your wife have mm-hmm. done the Camino so many times and, and what happened to you on the one year when you began on Holy Cross Day? You know? Yeah, Kevin, that was our, that was our first year, the, oh, the wow. first time. First time you did to it. walk it, yeah, yeah. It was uh, September fourteenth, twenty sixteen, which by happy accident was Holy Cross Day. I, I don't know that I even knew that at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first day is a long, hard day. You cross the Pyrenees. You arrive at this monastery. All the pilgrims stay at one place because there's nowhere else to stay. Mm. And I was in this in the chapel of this monastery, and I. I was. I happened to be looking at the cross. I wasn't really focusing on that. It's just where my eyes had landed. And I felt like the spirit kind of broke through mm. and gave me some instructions for this Camino that we were just beginning, our very first one. Mm. And the instructions were, enter every church you can, pay attention to the crucifix, ask what does this mean, and don't be too quick to give an answer. Mm. Ah, so that's what I did as it turned out for the next 40 days, 500 miles. And because of the nature of the Camino de Santiago, there's lots of churches. And we did, we, you know, we would enter everyone we could. Sometimes we didn't stay very long because we're, you know, on the move, but I did that. And because we are on pilgrimage, I'm not seeing the same crucifix every day. I'm seeing a different one. And, And that began to work on me. I thought, well, these crucifixes are all different. And they're all, and let me say something about crucifix versus cross. I'm not mm. interested in any kind of, you know, trying to bash one or the other. I don't mean that, but I just mean there is a difference. Yeah. Uh, when you look at a cross, it is rather abstract and is more or less a kind of geometric design. When you look at a crucifix, 
Hmm. You're going, whoa, there's a story here, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> and you can tell the story in many ways. And I saw that in the crucifixes. So in some crucifixes, Jesus was regal. Hmm. In some, you can see that he was, they were, you know, you could, you could see the suffering. In some, Jesus was serene. In some, you know, the ghastly torture was just abhorrent. And so there are all kinds of ways to tell this story. And so, you know, five years, five, six years later, whatever it was, when I set out to write this book, the first thing I really did think about is, is how strange it is. And there, there, there's a, I mean, how strange it is anthropologically yeah. that the most reproduced story image in human art is that of a naked man nailed to a tree. Yeah. Now we're, we're kind of, we sort of like, oh yeah, it's a crucifix. And, uh, yeah. This is this is a strange thing, and, and there's there's 16 art images in the book. There's there is an image I didn't put in the book mainly because well I don't know if IVP would have let me. They probably would have, but well, I couldn't find the cartoonist. It's a cartoon. Oh, I love this. Yeah, and the cartoon is a, a flying saucer has landed on Earth, and two of these aliens have just exited their flying saucer, and they happen to have landed right beside one of these large life-size roadside crucifixes, the kind you will see frequently in Spain. Hmm. And they're just looking at this. This is their, you know, their first impression of this planet Earth. Yeah. And one alien says to the other, you know what we need to do? We need to get the F out of here. That's what we need to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is it's so good. I mean, I've told this. Yeah. I, I laugh every time I say yeah. it. Yeah, but it's it's funny because it's also profound. Yes, that what the brilliance of this cartoon, and I don't know what the motive was. If the cartoonist just wanted to be funny or was trying to make a more serious point, but yeah, but what what the cartoonist has done has enabled us to see the crucifix afresh mm -hmm. through alien eyes, mm -hmm. and they don't know what all this means. All they can conclude is a planet where they depict. People crucified in public mm -hmm. is probably probably not a safe place. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. they're not wrong. Yeah, yeah. That's we're, right. we're out. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the, the one of the very first things I want to do very early in the book is try to recover at least some of the scandal yeah. of the crucifixion, the shock of it. Yeah, that that right. that this actually arrives at the heart of faith. I believe it's Fleming Rutledge who says yeah. the cross is far and away the most irreligious object to ever find itself into the heart of faith. And that's mm -hmm. and it's true. Yeah. 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 So yes, keeping so keeping on this theme of the cross and Good Friday, as Kevin said, it's coming up. You write about, as you say, the importance of this day early in the book. And uh, another quote from the book, and you write, the cross is not what God inflicts in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. Mm. This is an essential and enormous clarification. At the cross, the son does not act as an agent of change upon the father. Orthodox theology has always insisted that God is not subject to change or mutation. Rather, God is immutable. Thus, the cross is not where Jesus changes God, but where God, where, excuse me, where Jesus reveals God. Mm. On Good Friday, Jesus does not save us from God. Jesus reveals God as Savior. We don't have to imagine the Son pacifying an angry Father in order to understand Good Friday as the epicenter of forgiveness. And 
it, it is so true that for many Christians, the crucifixion is all about, uh, you know, appeasing God. Yeah. Um, this is an image of, of punitive and a vindictive God. And you write about the cross and as Good Friday as that moment when the sin of the world, you know, coalesces into uh, a hideous singularity that upon the cross it might be forgiven on mass. What if you could share more about, about that? Yeah, I mean, for those that are a little bit attuned to atonement theology, you can see that I'm pushing back on a particular theory that I leave unnamed in the book. Mm -hmm. I notice that. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I just don't. Yeah. And uh, But it is a particular theory that having arisen in its present form over the last 500 years or so, it, it goes back a little bit further, but... It seems to have, it's like an, invas an invasive species within theology. You know how invasive species yeah. where they just sort of take over. Yeah, it's the right. creeping and Charlie. It's the creeping Charlie. Creeping Charlie, yeah. 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 This is what this is. And instead of being yeah. one metaphor for talking about the cross, it's become, for many, the only way only. of talking about the cross. Worse yet, I think it's fundamentally flawed. Yeah. That with this particular theory of atonement, that in fact, it was where the father satisfies his wrath mm. by inflicting violent torture and death upon his own son. Well, we've, we've, we've done enormous damage to the Trinity. We've imported violence. We, we've, we've, yeah. we've imported domestic violence within the Trinity. <laughs> and this is untenable. This is not something that, that uh, this has to be addressed. And so... What we should say, we can say many things, but that we say that Christ died for us. That is a, that is a very, you know, that's a very simple, common, accurate statement. Christ died for us and Christ died for our sins. We can also say that. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says that's a very succinct synopsis of the gospel. What we cannot say is that Christ died for God. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, you just read that passage, but the son does not act as an agent of change upon the father. Another way of thinking about it is, well, where do we find the father on Good Friday? Is he in Caiaphas? Is he working through Caiaphas demanding uh, a scapegoat? Mm -hmm. Is he working through Pilate? inflicting an unjust lethal punishment on a supposed uh, rebel? No, we, we, find, we find the father where we always find him, in the son. Yeah, we right. find him in the son. Mm -hmm. And so the father is not outside the son inflicting punishment and violence upon the son. The father is acting within the son. This is all through John's gospel. Mm -hmm. You hear Jesus repeatedly say, oh, look, I only, I only say what the Father says. I only do what the Father does. The Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm -hmm. So that in Luke's gospel, where Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is simply revealing who the Father is. So we might imagine the Father's response, response being something like, of course, son, mm -hmm. this is who we are. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and, then, and then there is the issue because it's sometimes raised, and I think it's worth addressing. There is the, the cry of dereliction. Mm -hmm. The moment upon the cross when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
which is the opening sentence of Psalm 22. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we should probably keep the entire psalm in mind. And so, yes, in in agony, the son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you continue on uh, with the psalm, and it has various allusions to to crucifixion, uh, when you get to verse 24, it says that God did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. Mm Mm-hmm. So what I say about that moment is Jesus experienced God forsakenness upon the cross in the same way that you and I do. Mm-hmm. There have been moments in all of our lives when we felt like, God, where are you? My God, where, where have you gone? You've abandoned me. Now, as we, as we press on in faith and then come to recollect and look back upon that period of time, we go, you know what? God didn't forsake me. But in the moment, that was my experience. And so Jesus experiences the existential phenomenon of feeling God forsaken, as we all do. Mm-hmm. But he, he was not forsaken. How deep? And, 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 you know, the whole, even in the passion story doesn't end with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, ironically, I don't know what's ironic, but it, it's deeply incarnational, right? Like, I mean, it's it's this Lenten thing, but that idea that Jesus experiences all of it, right? Yes. How, how incarnational, right? Like, I mean, who else can know what we feel? See, nope. and there's comfort in that. That's right. right. That Jesus is in, is in full solidarity with our suffering, even right. experiencing the sensation of God forsakenness. Yeah, right. Um, switch gears a little bit um, for our listeners. This might be a, a new word to some, um, but you, the book and in the book, you, you call the reader into uh, uh, theopoetics, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and you write this, that theopoetics beckons us beyond critical textual analysis and into contemplative meditation. And you continue that, unfortunately, modernity is not so much inclined toward meditation or metaphor or mystery. Um, modernity is a tradition that tends to read the Bible only as a literal or historical critical level, and thus on a shallow and superficial level. Scripture is not an encyclopedia of God facts, but a portal into the divine mystery. Love that. The modernist reading of Scripture is obsessed with facts and information, but more empirical data is not what we need. What we need is a deeper experience with the sacred mystery of Christ. And that's a great invitation into that for folks, I think. So by way of exploring that poetics of theology, you write about John's strange uh, passage concerning the blood and water, you know, flowing mm-hmm. from the side of Christ on the cross as, a, as kind of a prime text to highlight the difference between like a modern and then a mystical reading of the Bible. And I think most people know that image. So can you share what those differences look like? Because there really is a big... Yeah, they're, they're, that's a very interesting passage. Um, John the Evangelist um, is present at the cross. Maybe just a brief aside here. Mm-hmm. I think this is why it's probably best. This is not this important, but I want to make this point. I think it's best to make a distinction between John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12, and John, the beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, beloved disciple. Be- yeah. Because the, it's very clear that the disciples all fled and forsook him. And yet there's this one that's known by the high priest that's able to, you know, 
drop his name and be able to get him and Peter into Kai. So I think this is a different person. Mm -hmm. This is a young man that's based in Jerusalem, but that's neither here nor there really. But in his gospel, he's present at the cross. And he talks about after Jesus was pierced by the Roman spear, he sees blood and water, like a fountain almost, just flowing from it. And he he really stresses. He says, I'm telling you the truth. I saw this. Mm What I wonder is if anyone else, if we'd been there, if we'd have seen it. I mean, I, I believe John. I don't think he's, 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 he goes to great lengths. I'm not, I'm not lying. I'm telling you that I saw this. But I think what he saw was a mystical vision. Mm-hmm. Now, this event was very fascinating to uh, early Christian, all the way through the medieval era, thinkers, writers, theologians, preachers. And they meditated much on this. And they tell, you, they tell you what they see in that. Then you cross into the modern era and everything changes. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it becomes forensic. And, and it, we, the, they turn into coroners trying to give a <laughs> actual forensic yeah. cause of death for Jesus of Nazareth. A, yeah. a, a, I forgot what, what, the, what it is. Maybe you have it there, but it's a, yeah. a, 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 <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, hemothorax in the plural cavity yeah, that's right. or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, as, as, that as if, yeah, okay. <laughs> CSI <laughs> Jerusalem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have put that line in the plural cavity. Yeah, if I, yeah, CSI Jerusalem. I want to I go back and put that line in CSI Jerusalem. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, that may be... That may be interesting. I'm not sure how edifying that is or what the point of it ultimately would be. You know, you have, and so, and so th- this is a more mystical, more, if you want to say poetic approach to interpreting the text, which I think is, is what is the healthier approach. I mean, one of the things you want to understand is that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not journalists. They don't think of themselves as that. They have a deliberate theological agenda. And so they are crafting their gospels toward that end. And much of it is what I would describe as falling in the realm of theopoetics. Mm-hmm. And, but, but we're just so smitten by the precise language of prose here in modernity. And we think that that precision is what we need, but what we think of as precision can also be very limiting. And it doesn't really open the door for a more spiritual reading of the text. And so I, I the, the book is given the subtitle. I never, I never use my subtitles. I mean, I don't, they, they're given to me. Mm-hmm. A poetic theology of the cross. I like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, but that could throw people. It's not a poetry book, although there's a little bit of poetry in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But but really what I'm doing is I'm in, I'm employing all kinds of art mm-hmm. to help talk about the various meanings of the crucifixion. So yes, I use I refer to poetry, but also literature, paintings, film, song. Mm-hmm. All of that I is at my disposal to talk about the many meanings of the cross. Yeah. You, you um, the other thing that you were going to sort of doubling back a little bit, I guess. But you, you it, look, the three of us on here have pastored for a long time. Mm-hmm. We've all been in this for a bit, so we're all very familiar with you know where is God when people suffer, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, mm-hmm. we get we get this. It's, uh, you know, how can there be a, a loving God when right. people suffer? And you write about this, and in in terms of Bonhoeffer and Eli Wiesel and so on, and you write, where is God in the unspeakable human suffering? And then I I love what you write here. You say he is there hanging on the gallows. If authentic being requires a radical freedom where all things are permitted, including unmitigated evil, God does not exempt himself from the experience, but fully shares it with us in Christ. The only theology I know is that God, too, has hung, suffered, and died upon the gallows in solidarity with the sad angel of Buchenwald. God, too, has been gazed upon in the death throes. Now, you make the case that Christ in agony upon the cross is a God who refuses to allow uh, his beloved creatures to suffer alone. This is a very solidarity, a, a, a sort of atonement, I guess. And you highlight the Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, um, only the suffering God can help mm-hmm. before he went to the gallows himself. Can you say more about that moment uh, of God in solidarity with the suffering? Well, this is my attempt to address the thorny subject of theodicy. Mm-hmm. Theodicy is the Christian attempt to reconcile the claims we make about the goodness of God and the reality of suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately, I mean, we have we have the alpha of radical freedom, which is necessary for authentic being. And then as we look forward eschatologically, we have the omega of the restoration of all things, the apocatastasis, the every tear wiped away, death shall be no more, all of that blessed eschatological hope that we have. Mm -hmm. But in between the alpha of radical free will and the omega of all things made new, we have the tau of the cross that stands right there in the middle. And just as I said in that passage, God does not exempt himself from it. God does not say this is a necessary journey for authentic being for you to arrive at the telos. You're gonna have to pass through some of this pain. If that's so though, God does not exempt himself, but participates with us fully in it, in Christ. And I mean, people can testify. I mean, again, we're talking among pastors here. Mm-hmm. The idea that Christ has suffered is comforting. Yep. And this, this, is, this is the context in which uh, Bonhoeffer in prison, mm-hmm. you know, probably knowing he's going to the gallows, writes, only the suffering God can help, which is a pushback mm-hmm. on what had been a position for a long time with the church of, of the radical impassibility of God, mm-hmm. that, that God himself cannot actually suffer. And and you can you can hear the frustration in suffering Bonhoeffer's pen. Only the suffering God can help, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what we find. And in First Peter, you have the, that, those marvelous lines: um, "By His wounds we are healed." Mm-hmm. I think of it like this: when we bring our woundedness to the wounds of Christ. It does not multiply woundedness, but somehow, somehow tends towards healing. I don't know if I can explain how that works. I can testify both personally and as a pastor that it's true. That that people are comforted knowing that Jesus also suffered and that he is in solidarity with all who suffer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we can witness to that, can we? Like you say, we've seen it in those moments that, 
those quiet private moments, mm-hmm. and it's it's true, and it's there. Um, one thing we'll do on on Good Friday, of course, is read the Passion narratives. Um, yeah. One of the I think one of the more interesting aspects of the story is Pilate, um, and and you write about uh, Pilate. Um, and especially the question that he poses to Jesus, which I always, when I try to read it, I always let that one hang a bit, right? <laughs> those mm-hmm. three those three words where Pilate uh, turns to Jesus in their dialogue and says, what is truth? Mm. What is truth? And in the book, uh, Brian writes that in the end, Pontius Pilate was little more than a pawn in a game too big for him to understand. Mm-hmm. An evil let loose long ago had swept an ambitious pleb from Italy into a series of fateful events that led to the moment when he would ask Jesus, what is truth? And then he would condemn him to his death. The pagan governor did not have the capacity to imagine a world that was not dominated by brute force, but the chief priests should have known better. After all, they had had the Hebrew prophetic tradition to draw upon. Prophets like Isaiah and Micah imagined a world where swords are turned into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Mm. Today, we might imagine a world where tanks are turned into tractors and missile silos converted to grain silos, a world where agriculture is advanced and the military-industrial complex is abandoned. Mm. Can you say more about Pilate? Uh, Brian, this role. And there's so much. Pilate is, will always be such a fascinating character. Mm. And and this is why novelists and playwrights just cannot (laughs) resist. That's right, yeah. Trying to enter into his psyche and portray him in various ways. And so I I, I draw both upon uh, Mikhail Bogolkov in his uh, Russian masterpiece, The Master and Marguerite, which has endless dialogues between Jesus and Pilate. And then, of course, the fabulous work of Frederick Buechner, (laughs) where, where he imagines Pilate with these comical anachronisms and and Pilate is, you know, he's a chain-smoking bureaucrat <laughs> that likes his gin martinis at night, has a troubled wife who's seeing an analyst. Yeah. 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 And, uh, they, and so I, I can't, in fact, I can't even preach anymore that part without acting, with, without doing that. It's like, <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah. What is truth? What is, what is truth? truth? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. I, so... Yeah, Pilate, and and he even creeps into our creed for crying out loud. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I understand why we would have, you know, Jesus is mentioned by name, of course. Mary's mentioned by name. But then we get Pilate because Pilate gives historical context. And yet, it's such a fascinating story. So I want to push a little bit more onto this. Um, so Pilate famously asks, I think rather cynically, what is truth? And then there's, there's a then they part for a moment. Jesus is taken away, and this is when he's scourged. He, mm-hmm. He's taken into before the Praetorium, and, and the uh, the cohort there they mock mm-hmm. him and scourge. We know this story. And then he's brought back, and the, and this is the famous you know H A Homo, behold the man moment. Yeah, yeah. And now Pilate continues his interrogation, but Jesus doesn't say anything. Mm. 
He's kind of said what he had to say. He says, I've come to bear witness to the truth, and all who are of the truth listen to what I have to say. What is truth? And then he scourged, brought back, behold the man. He starts to interrogate him again, and Jesus doesn't say anything. And in frustration, Pilate says, don't you know, I have power mm-hmm. to release you, and I have power to kill you. Yeah. Well, that's Pilate answering his own question. Yeah. What is truth? For part of the truth is the world is run by those who have the greatest capacity to kill. It's the empire. Yeah, and I imagine I imagine Peter saying, or not Peter Pilate saying something like, you know, you seem fairly harmless enough, you Galilean dreamer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you'll just admit that this is the truth, that the world really is run by those who have the greatest power to kill. I'm talking about Tiberius Caesar and people like me. If you could just admit that, I think we can work this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, th- see, that's all a lie. I mean, that, th- that's the world that is, but Jesus comes to do no, nothing less than refound the world. Instead of being organized around an axis of power enforced by violence, Jesus is refounding the world around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, earlier, I'm kind of bouncing around here with Pilate, but earlier, the, the one question the Pilate has, he, he wants to know, are you a king? Yeah. And he doesn't care about, the Sanhedrin convicts Jesus of blasphemy on religious grounds. Pilate doesn't care about that. Mm-hmm. He just wants to know, are you claiming to be a king? Because kingship is not claimed, it is granted by the emperor in Rome. Mm-hmm. And if you're claiming to be a king, then we're going to have a problem. And Jesus says, you say I'm a king, but my kingdom is not from this world. It's for this world, but it's not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting. They're not. Right. And that should alert us to how radically different the kingdom of God established by Christ is than the kingdoms of this world. And there can be no easy conflation of the two. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. That's yeah. my critique of empire and Christendom and yeah, Christian well, nationalism yeah. and all yeah. of that sort of stuff. Well, it, it, it's all there right now, right? Like it's yeah. not. It's, it's all there right now. Yeah. We're watching I've, it, I've been yeah. talking about this for probably 15 years, maybe a little longer. Yeah. And I keep thinking I'll be able to stop talking about this one of these days. <laughs> I would love to stop talking about it. Yeah. But yeah. I haven't been able to do that yet. Mm, they may say you're a dreamer, but you're not the only one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's. <laughs> um, you also write uh, about Tolkien in this book, which I really like, and, and Lord of the Rings. You mentioned earlier when we in this conversation that you draw on various forms of art mm-hmm. and expression, and and Lord of the Rings, um, you know, is really quite um, allegorical in some ways, I guess. You write uh, that the cross is the antithesis to the ring of power, but that does not change the fact that we live in the liminal space of now and not yet, of kingdom come and still await it. Living between the resurrection and the parousia, we must constantly choose between two ways of rectifying the world, the cross or the ring of power. And we see that temptation to power playing out in tragic ways now, going back to what we were just talking about in the evangelical church and white Christian nationalism um, and, its, and its marriage to the political right. Um, you, you go on to write, the church is given keys, not a sword. <laughs> and yet when Rome offered the sword of political power to the church by making it the state-sponsored church of the empire in 380, the church willingly embraced it, uh, embraced the office, offer pardon me, of political power. And it was probably an inevitable mistake 
but it has been our bane ever since. There are always strings attached to Caesar's gifts. For a seat at the table of political privilege and a hand upon the sword of political power, the emperor exacts the kind of allegiance that can only lead to compromise. And as you point out in the book, you know, in 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 the Lord of the Rings, even Gandalf has mm -hmm. to fight off the temptation to do this, right? He had a better he had better sense than to trust himself with this with this ring, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I wonder if you can say more about the price paid by these alliances and perhaps a word. I mean, the image that really struck me in that chapter was a Putin standing at the altar at Easter in 2022 uh, and the Orthodox blessing of him with holy incense. I mean, so say, yeah. more, say more about that. So I've written a lot about the cross as the antithesis to Caesar's sword, which is kind of a metaphor. And I've written about that in Farewell to Mars, Postcards mm -hmm. from Babylon, The Unvarnished Jesus. I've written a lot about that. And I've used that kind of language. And I thought, well, I'm, this time I'm going to use a different metaphor that may resonate with people a little better. Mm -hmm. And so I draw upon the Lord of the Rings. You know, one ring to rule them all. That's one right. ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, bind them. Yeah, Tolkien wrote a story that is founded in the Christian story. He says so. He says so in a, in a, in a private letter. He said, I'm, I'm writing a Christian story and the symbols and signs are there for people who want to search them out. Um, one of the most resonant themes I find in the Lord of the Rings, and I'm not, I want to clarify, I'm not a Lord of the Rings full-on nerd status. <laughs> I mean, I've read it four times. I love it. I'm familiar with the text, but I see these YouTubes, man. It's like, man, these people are deep into this. <laughs> I admire Brian's, it. But, Brian's but, uh, not going not to Comic-Con. Yeah, no, and Brian, <laughs> Brian is not Stephen Colbert, right? Stephen Colbert that's is, right. Oh, yeah, he, yeah. He can, he, be, he can recite the thing. I, I know, I know. So one of the most resonant themes I find is the inability of anyone to use the ring for any good. The ring has one master. Now what the ring is, is power. Mm -hmm. And you have people think, well, yeah, but I, I want to do something good with it. You can't. Mm -hmm. You can't. It will corrupt you. And so Gandalf won't even touch it. We alluded to that. Mm -hmm. he, and he said, look, when, when Frodo offers it to him, he says, no, don't offer it to me. He said, look, the way of the ring to my heart would be through pity and a desire to do good. Mm -hmm. But it would corrupt me. And I don't want to become like the dark lord himself. Aragorn. Mm -hmm. Won't take it when it's offered. Um, Galadriel at Lothlorien, she has a moment where she's tempted because Frodo offers it to her. You want the ring? I'll give it to you because he, he really doesn't want it. Yeah. You can have it. And, and she has this moment of temptation where she's, you shall not have a dark lord but a queen and yeah. I shall be, you know, all that. But, but she resists. Yeah. And she says, uh, I have passed the test. I will diminish and go into the West. Mm. And, and I, that always reminds me of John, the, for some reason, it reminds me of John the Baptist saying, he must increase, but I must decrease. Mm. The, the only people that can, and they're not people, they're hobbits, the only ones that can maybe, maybe have this power are the simplest of people, the hobbits. Mm. And even Frodo at the end couldn't willingly relinquish it. Providence had to intervene. The only person in the whole book who was able to actually possess the ring 
and then willingly relinquish it was the humblest of all. This is Samwise Gamgee, the gardener, who, who is the true hero of the story. Mm-hmm. And he had his moment of temptation where he fantasized of being Samwise the strong hero of the age. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then he realized, no, no. He says, uh, my own, I, I, I need only my own small garden, not a garden swollen to a realm. Um, my own hands to work with, not the hands of others to command. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm not just trying to reiterate the Lord of the Rings to people. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing in this context is critiquing the idea that we can, as Christians, lay down the cross, reach for the ring of power or the sword of Caesar, whatever you want to call it, reach for political power, not be corrupted by it, and use it for good. This was, this was Boromir's fantasy. That's right. It's a gift, I say. And in our hour of need, the ring appears. Yeah. Well, he does try to take it, and he betrays the fellowship. And this is where then I kind of believe fantasy literature and dive into current politics. I do make reference to evangelicals and Trump. uh, But then I also think, well, it might be a little bit easier to see this by viewing it across the street. And so I talk about the real-life Saruman, who is Patriarch Kirill, the uh, highest-ranking Orthodox cleric in in. Russian Orthodoxy, who, you know, has just, who has just humiliated himself mm-hmm. and betrayed the gospel by declaring this rapacious war of Vladimir Putin upon Ukraine as a holy war yeah. and that God is blessing it. And uh, I don't know if I could find that passage, but yeah, there, there is this moment after the war had been launched and, and Putin's at midnight mass. I've been in that cathedral. I've been in that cathedral for midnight mass for Christmas, wow. the very same service he was in because it's January 6th, you know, yeah, yeah. Orthodox. Right. I, was, I was in Moscow way back when and was, I attended midnight mass there, so I've been there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Putin's holding this little candle and, you know, Kirill's got his censer and he's swafting the incense upon Putin and everybody else, you know. And an Orthodox friend of mine, he's a professor, Canadian, um, said, how strange. You know, early Christians were martyred for failing to just toss in a pinch of incense into the censer to honor a bust of one of the Caesars declared now to be God. Right. And yet now it's all come full circle. And in their own liturgies, you know, they are Amazing. incensing the one who is waging war. Um, interestingly, I was the only non-Orthodox invited this year to speak at the Institute for Studies in, uh, Institute for Studies in Eastern Christianity, sponsored mm. by Union Seminary. Yeah, and um, that was that was an interesting experience. And they asked me to. They just asked me to bring a critique of what wow. it is. Oh, that that Putin is doing, and they brought out the point that last year, at least in 2023, 80% of combat deaths worldwide were Orthodox Christians being killed by Orthodox Christians. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It, 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 that's, that's the kind of betrayal that can happen when you let go of the cross and reach for, for, the, for the, the ring. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, Theologian James Cohn wrote a book Mm -hmm. called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, and he wrote this, the lynching tree 
is the cross in America. When American Christians realize that they can meet Jesus only in the crucified bodies in our midst, they will encounter the real scandal of the cross. Mm. And in Brian's book, in your chapter, The Lynching of the Son of Man, it explores how the crucifixion has been reenacted on Jesus again and again over the 5,000 lynchings in America during the lynching area. I wonder, Brian, if you could say a little bit more about this and, and what you were doing with that chapter. Yeah, powerful. that chapter, I'm just looking at it right now. Chapter 13, The Lynching of the Son of Man. That was a chapter where I largely tried to stay out of the way and let James Cone do most of the talking. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I just felt like, okay, this voice needs to be heard. And I just sort of moved it along by making, telling some various stories and tying it in with the Billie Holiday song, Strange Fruit, right. Fruit and things like that. And then at the end, I tell my own story about trying to publicly repent for a lynching that had happened in my city back in the 1930s. Uh, but But one thing that I do in the book that I think is, I don't know, a bit original, at least it is for me, is again, cross or crucified is so overladen. It's almost, you know, it's, 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 it's overladen with, with Christian and religious meaning that it's hard to get to how scandalous it was originally. Yeah. And so if you go through some of Paul's writings and swap out cross or crucifixion for lynching tree or lynched, then once again, we, we get the, it hits us. So here's a few examples. Mm-hmm. Imagine Paul writing like this. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him lynched. I have been lynched with Christ. May I never boast of anything except the lynching tree of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hearing these verses in this way recovers the scandal of the cross. Perhaps I could push it right to the brink by imagining Paul in Mississippi saying, we preach Christ lynched, a scandal to blacks and foolishness to whites. Mm. That hits hard, as it should. But the jarring connection between, between the cross and the lynching tree is what black church in America instinctively saw. Yeah, That's, that's, that's a, I think that's a chapter that punches hard, it you know, does. as it should. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's so much. I mean, we could have four podcasts on this book, but I can't encourage people enough to get it. And I'm just using it as a book study here. The level of conversation uh, has been phenomenal. And just a, a bit about the imaging, because uh, last this past Tuesday when we met, I brought them uh, an image from St. Stephen's Cathedral in Brisbane. Uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with this one, Brian, or not, but it's an interesting image because Jesus is nailed to the cross on one side, and it's freestanding. So mm-hmm. you can walk all the way around it, around the altar. And there's no vertical beam. There's just a horizontal beam. And he's nailed on one side, and he, his hand is reaching out on the other. So he's sort of in that uh, in-between <laughs> space. And uh, we, we were talking about that over and opposed against the image that 
you had in your book, you know, with the grotesque fingers and, you know. And the Eisenheim. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Things, yeah. Yeah, and so there was just a lot of reflection about the difference of that. And one of the conversations we got into was about the harrowing of hell, right? Because that image of Christ in between, mm-hmm. you know, what's happening, that action, right? And you write about this, and this is one last quote, Will, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here, which you wrote, the death of Jesus upon the cross did not appease God, but it did sicken death. <laughs> which I really like. This is the most common way the first Christians preached the cross, and they clearly enjoyed employing a mischievous imagination in taunting Satan, death, and hell. In his sermon, Homily on the Cemetery and the Cross, Chrysostom boldly asserts that Christ, by his death, bound the chief of robbers and the jailer, that is, the devil and death, and transferred his treasures, that is, the entire human race, to the royal treasury. Um I think you're likely the only person I know who could actually write about the harrowing of hell and men in black. Um, <laughs> and, and, so, and so if you could say a word about that, about that business. Right, of, so, so the early church fathers, preachers, all of this, they really liked the idea of Jesus going down into hell and sickening hell. Mm-hmm. And they they would they would play with Jonah, and so the the fish vomits Jonah back up. Okay, Jesus, Son of Man, goes down into the belly of the fish into Hades, but Hades is sickened and is vom and what is vomited out is not only Christ but all that death had held captive prior. I said, okay, well that's that's Chrysostom and others. Mine, I draw upon that marvelous cinematic. Uh, achievement that is Men in Black, <laughs> and I know they've you know there's there's been subsequent ones. I'm talking about the the original one, yeah. Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, yeah, Agent J, Agent K, and all that. And you remember the climactic moment, this confrontation with the bug, the galactic cockroach, yeah, <laughs> who had been in the Edgar suit, but he shed <laughs> his Edgar suit, yeah. And there's this moment where. Uh, I'm just going to use the actors' names. Where Tommy Lee Jones is is taunting the bug, "Eat me, eat me," and he does. And you think, "Oh, that's it. Tommy Lee Jones is done for. He's dead. He's gone down into that. That's it." No, he went down in death to retrieve his weapon that yes. the bug had already eaten. And a few moments later, the bug is destroyed from the inside out. This yeah. is almost precisely the way the early yeah. church fathers preached how how Christ destroys death. That because Christ was mortal, he could die. But because he was divine, death could not digest divinity. And death was destroyed from the inside out and all of its captives were liberated. I love it. I just love it. So, so you will never see that scene. Oh no! no. In it's, Men in Black, no, and yeah. not going. Yeah. Man, thanks a lot. That's the gospel, right? <laughs> That's there. the gospel yeah. right there. <laughs> I was, I was trying to escape thinking about church and stuff for a night, but oh no! Now no, I got. No, no, it's funny, you know, you say it because all the art that you bring out in here, right? I found myself as I'm reading this book, actually. So I'm, I'm sitting here listening to uh, the Lynching Tree uh, the other day, right? Uh-huh. Because I'm reading that. And and uh, I've already gone and seen where I can go back now and rewatch Men in Black because I got to watch this again now. And <laughs> good stuff. That's good stuff, uh, Brian. Hey, thanks so much for giving us the time. I, we know you got lots on the go, and we really appreciate that you'd spend some time with us. The Wood Between the Worlds is the new book, and it, it is out now. Um, and really uh, good to see you again. We hope to get you back down the road. Thank you, Rob.
Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Brian. Again, our thanks to Brian Zahn and uh, his great work, The Wood Between the Worlds. And we certainly encourage our listeners to get on uh, Amazon or head to your local bookstore and see if you can pick that up. You might have to wait a bit because it's quite mm -hmm. popular. Uh, and it's popular because it's so darn good. So yep. um, hopefully you'll enjoy that. Thanks very much, Kevin. Good to see you, buddy. We'll be back Always again good. next week. Yep. Uh, God willing, with another episode of the Vickers Podcast. And again, thanks to our sponsors, to A. Miller George Funeral Home, where each life is celebrated, and their sister company, Cremation London Middlesex, both family-owned and operated, to the Diocese of Huron, a community where families and individuals from Windsor to Owen Sound and Grand Bend to Port Rowan come together to worship and serve. And Molly Maid, make your home a healthy haven. Call Molly Maid London today. Awesome. I'm Rob Henderson and uh, from Holy Trinity St. Stephen's, and he's Kevin George, the Dean of the Cathedral at St. Paul's. Well, fair and Kevin, I know. Well, got to yeah. throw it out once in a while. Um, remember, when you're when you're walking around downtown London yeah. now, because I know yes. you spend more town, down, it's a little busier down there, my friend. It is, it, was it is. On west, in the west part of London. So remember yeah. to look both ways. Before I cross the street. Thank you for listening. Our hosts are Kevin George and Rob Henderson. Our producer and composer is myself, Ian, with original artwork done by Elizabeth Dodman. If you have any questions or want to know where to find us, tweet us at Vickers Crossing or find us on Facebook at The Vickers Crossing. If you have any other questions about anything heard on this podcast, leave us a comment or look in the description to find out more. Thanks! Thanks!